0: Our scripture today comes from Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Once, while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, The one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. for he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When he had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. The Word of God. For the people of God. God.
1: Will you pray with me? Lord, we know you as the creator and sustainer of all life. We ask that you would breathe out your Holy Spirit, that it would hover over us in this space like it did before time existed over the waters. Fill our lungs, fill our hearts, fill our minds with your spirit. Lord, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of us gathered here would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Before I graduated Divinity School, I received one of the greatest gifts that I have ever gotten. It was a a set of commentaries from my mother-in-law, Luann. You see, she's a a pastor, she's been doing this for quite some time, and she said, I don't have a use for these anymore. You should take them. I thought, well, traveling with all of these books, one for each book of the Bible is pretty cumbersome, but yeah, thanks for the, the gift. But as I got a hold of these books and began to thumb through them, I, I saw the margins were almost as black as the, the lines in the middle of the page. You see, Luann had used these same set of commentaries while she was in the Divinity School. When she was going over passages of scripture, teaching and preaching, she was making notes in the margins the whole time. In my family, Harry Potter is a big deal. My mother is a, is a school teacher, and so from an early age she had me reading Harry Potter. We became enthralled with the stories. But in one of the books, Harry Potter and the, the Half-Blood Prince, Harry joins up in the potions class a little bit later than, than his, his friends, And so he has to get a hand-me-down book from the cabinet. The the professor tells him to go get one, and he's annoyed when he opens it. He sees that the margins are as black as the lines on the page. But as he reads in the margins, he realizes that the person that owned the book before him had some wisdom, some knowledge. And he, he begins to do great at potions by taking his advice. And this is kind of how I felt about these commentaries. I felt like I had a secret in the margin, someone that I could communicate with. I was having a conversation, not only with God and with the scripture, but with my mother-in-law as I went through these commentaries. Well, over the last two weeks, I've, I've been in Idaho with my mother-in-law, and the plan was, as we drove home, that I would write this sermon in the passenger seat because I don't know if you know this, but driving back from Idaho is a 31-hour drive according to Google Maps. And I don't know if you've driven through Nebraska, but there's really not much to see there and so I figured I would write this sermon while we were going along and so I reach into my backpack to pull out my handy dandy commentary on the book of Luke so that I can maybe glean some nuggets of wisdom from within the margins and it's not there so if at any time today you feel like the sermon is lacking wisdom that might be the reason but luckily I was given such a great passage of scripture to preach from in in Luke 5 that we could step out in uncertainty into this text together. Luke 5 is such an incredible story here in the Gospel of Luke. In five chapters, Jesus is aged 33 years. Who knew? Who knew? In chapter 1, he was a kid, and now in chapter 5, he's a grown adult. We kind of whiz by at the beginning of Mark. We see Jesus quickly in chapter 2 go to the temple as a young boy, one of the only stories we hear about him then. Then we hear about him being baptized by his cousin John, tempted in the wilderness, and then thrown out of his home church for preaching. Now when we were home in Hannah's hometown, I tried to get her to preach on that text, getting thrown out of your home church for preaching, and she said no. And now in chapter 5, Jesus has begun his ministry. He's been healing and doing miracles, and now we find him teaching there on the side of a great sea. The people, it says in the scripture, were were pressed in on this strange man, this carpenter named Jesus, who they hadn't met, to hear what Jesus was saying. Growing up in Houston, where it's very humid, you don't really want to be in a crowd of people as they stand that close to you. The, the, The smell's not the greatest thing. You begin to feel a little claustrophobic. The air becomes thick. So Jesus, probably feeling this same way, glances around, and there on the shore is a group of guys with their boat, cleaning their nets, and so he jumps in, and, and, and that's where the real story begins. Fishermen kind of always are intertwined in these stories, and I, I think it's because fishermen tell taller tales than pastors tell. I like to surround myself with fishermen. It makes me seem a little more normal. And one of those fishermen that I I like and surround myself with is a a guy by the name of Patrick. We went to school together at at Duke and he's now a a pastor in Peachland, North Carolina. Patrick's a a fantastic pastor. He did well in in seminary, he he preaches well, he teaches well, he has great interpersonal skills, but if he quit being a pastor today, his calling on this earth would not go wasted. You see, Patrick is one of the most incredible fly fishermen I've ever had the opportunity to behold. He's almost like a scientist. He knows when the bugs are coming down. He is an artist in the way that he ties flies, and he's athletic in the way that he casts the rod. It's, it's a thing to behold. Now, I would fished before. I grew up in Texas. My father was a big fisherman, as was his grandfather. But we had always used a, a different method of fishing. And so Patrick invited me out and said, Come, I want to show you a, a new kind of fishing. So we went out, and by the end of the day, I had caught seven trout. This was easily one of the greatest days of my life. The the weather was perfect. We saw bald eagles fly overhead, and I caught two rainbows, four brown trout, and a brook trout. It was magnificent. It was awesome. And as we waded to the shore, I turned to my masterful guide, and I said, Patrick, how many did you catch? And he said, one. Now, I began to feel pretty good about myself. I mean, seven fish. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm pretty good at these things. But then, as I began to think back on the day and and how I got to where I was, I remember when the sun was coming up and we were sitting on the tailgate and Patrick set up my rod and and reel and he tied the fly on. He had taken the time to make sure he had an extra pair of boots and waders for me to borrow so so that we could fish that day. He had made sure that I had a license to fish for the day. He took me out and, and, and stood behind me as I kind of stumbled through the river as the, as the water moved and, and moved my arm for me. In fact, the first two fish I caught, he was the one that picked them up in the net because I didn't have that coordination thing down quite yet. Patrick took the time to teach me. He sacrificed his own day of fishing to show me a new way of fishing. Sometimes maybe the mark of a good fisherman then is, listening when God places a teacher right there in front of you, right there in your midst. And so when Jesus steps into the boat, like me, he was a novice at the kind of fishing that these fishermen would have been doing. As a carpenter by trade, Jesus probably knew more about the construction of this boat rather than kind of what goes on in there. But after giving his sermon, he turns to these fishermen and says, hey, let me tell you a little something about fishing. I'm pretty good at this thing. I don't know if you knew that. Now, you can imagine the look on their faces, not wanting to be rude. They've heard him preach and teach, and they've seen the crowd that he's amassed, but they're thinking to themselves, gee, Jesus, we fished all night. That's to do the fishing that we do. And we really only brought the boats to shore to clean the nets. It was also kind of a front row seat to listen to you talk. We didn't have to stand on the shore. I think we're okay without a fishing lesson. But then they paused before listening to him. They must have seen something in the eyes of this carpenter. Maybe they saw a glimmer of that spirit that hovered on the water at the beginning of time. Maybe they saw a glimmer of the God that created the heavens and the earth and who plucked the leviathan up on a fish hook. Maybe they saw a glimmer of grace in the eyes of this carpenter. So they decide to listen. They cast down their nets and draw up the largest haul any of them have ever seen. Like Anne said, they were using these fish to sell in the marketplace for money and this haul would have doubled, tripled, even quadrupled their earnings at the market. This catch was like winning the lottery. This catch could change their lives. This, ch- this catch would change their lives. Now the fishermen at this point can't believe what's happening. This novice, this carpenter has gotten into the boat. He's now telling them what to do and he was right and so the man in charge of the fishing operation, a man named Simon Peter, someone you're all familiar with, looked at this stranger in the boat and threw himself down at his feet. Not because of the miracle, but because he he recognized this stranger in his boat. He had never met him before, but for some reason Peter felt like he knew him. He knew him because of the, the miraculous, extraordinary things he was doing in front of him, and Peter and his friends couldn't help but be in awe of this strange man and then jesus looks at them and says don't fear me follow me i have a a new way of fishing i want to teach you now it's at this point in the story where we close the book we finish with chapter 10 and we say a new way of fishing we're going to fish for people we we end the flannel graph message we we turn off veggie tales and we have a great tagline fishing for people but the scripture goes on, and that, that, chapter, that verse 11 holds such a strong weight. It says, they rowed to shore, dropped everything, and followed Jesus. They left everything on the shore. That day their boats were so full of fish, the nets were literally tearing, and their boats were sinking. When they got to shore, they, they, they left all that behind. Even the fish, they just left it. Their boats were so full, their arms must have ached from hauling them in. I don't know if you've read The Old Man and the Sea, but the way the fisherman describes the agony that it took, the toil to to bring in a haul of that magnitude, they worked so hard, and that didn't matter. They dropped everything. They had enough fish in their boat to change their lives, to change their social and economic status. They dropped everything. The miracle that day was not the new teaching that Jesus was giving, and it wasn't the amount of fish in their net. It was the example those first disciples give to us when they drop all their material possessions, all their temptation for economic gain, all their fear of uncertainty and doubt in life, and they step out in faith to follow a man that would become their savior. Often in in life, we we don't want to rock the boat of our lives. We don't want to change the status quo. We're afraid if we, we do something, it might be too difficult. It might be it might be hard and uncertain. We want to go on fishing the same waters, yielding the same results, and when someone or something appears in our midst that could change our lives, we don't want to step out, we don't want to drop everything to follow, because maybe we're afraid we won't make it, or maybe we feel like we won't belong to the life that God is calling us to. When I begin to feel like this in my own life, when I feel the dark fingers of doubt creeping in, I remember a quote from a fictional character named Burley Coulter. And I know I've, I've said his mission statement before. Burley Coulter was a, a tobacco farmer in the, the fictional books by Wendell Berry, the, the theologian and writer. He's a perennial bachelor and the keeper of the Coulter family tradition. And they, the family gets together at meals. He's the one that prays. He's the one that regales them with tales. And he's the keeper of the mission statement. Burley, being a farmer, he has this, this interesting idea about what membership means on Earth. He believes that everyone is connected, not just the people in his family, not just the people in his community of Port Royal, but everything is connected, even the land that he farms and the air and the birds and everything around him. And He has a mission statement that goes like this, this is the way that we are. We're members of each other, all of us, everything. The difference ain't about who is a member and who is not, but who knows it and who don't. The difference ain't about who is a member and who is not, but who knows it and who don't. Friends, we all get to be members of the body of Christ. We belong to a God and to a community that is bigger than our problems, that has the power to pluck us up from the hardest and darkest times and who's right there with us during the good times too. We're members of the body of Christ, not because of anything that we did, not because we did anything to earn it, but because we say around here, it's on the house. From the beginning, we were grafted into this beautiful, wonderful, complex body of Christ and community of believers. Sometimes we learn it because we see it in the faithfulness of another. Sometimes we learn it because something appears in our midst and we see God fully and we can't help would be in awe of his extravagant love and drop everything and follow. We're all beloved children of God, made perfectly and wonderfully in God's image. And it ain't about who is or who isn't, but who knows it and who don't. I said at the beginning that I was worried about not having the words to write. I was uncertain about this because I didn't have that comforting, familiar conversation partner in the handwriting that I had grown so accustomed to in the margins of these commentaries. But as we drove across Nebraska, we stopped at a truck stop. I was looking for some inspiration and the flat land all around wasn't really doing it for me. I thought maybe a good cup of coffee will perk up my spirits. And so I get my coffee, I sit in the passenger seat, and as I go to take a sip, I had one of those memory experiences. I don't know if you've ever had this when you smell something and it it takes you back to maybe your grandmother's kitchen or you hear a song on the radio and it it, it brings you back to a time in the summer when you were younger and you were in your first car and all the windows are down and you're having a great time one of those things where our senses and our memory are inextricably linked as I sipped that cup of coffee I was brought back to my mother-in-law's kitchen. There's always a cup of coffee There on the counter, whether it's five in the morning or midnight, there's always warm coffee for anyone that wants it. And as I stumbled in, in the morning, in the kitchen, after letting the puppies out and waking up my niece, I got my cup of coffee, and there, above the coffee pot, are notes. My mother-in-law leaves these notes for herself in the kitchen, but the one above the coffee pot was in familiar handwriting. It was the handwriting that I had become accustomed to, adorning the sides of the page, and it said... Faith does not grow in a house of certainty. Faith does not grow in a house of certainty. When we step out of our comfortable boat to follow Jesus, to go and spread his love and message to all the world, we're called into an uncertain future. We have to drop all the things that we know that are certain. We have to let go of all the things and all the people telling us that this will be too difficult or too scary. We have to trust that the one we're dropping everything for Jesus is walking right alongside us, the light before us, the strength behind us, and a gentle presence guiding us on the path that leads to life eternal. May it be so.